Hello and welcome to Blue Plaques Talk Back, and thank you for coming on this journey with us. I hope you are ready for a walk through Mayfair. Before we leave the wonderful Browns Hotel, let's just take a moment to appreciate its history. Browns Hotel came into being in 1832. Since then, it has been host to a staggering number of famous names and events. It has changed beyond all imagination, but still retains its quintessential style. It was the place where Alexander Graham Bell made his first ever telephone call. One of the first lifts in any hotel was installed here at Browns. A smoking room was introduced for gentlemen, and the restaurant here was the first in a hotel. Guests as varied as Theodore Roosevelt, Rudyard Kipling, Haile Selassie have stayed here. Mark Twain famously appeared at eight o'clock in the morning in the foyer in a blue bathrobe and slippers before he walked out to Dover Street with his secretary. Agatha Christie based her book at Bertram's Hotel on this hotel, and Stephen King is said to have gleaned inspiration from the unsurpassed afternoon tea. Stories are a vital part of this hotel, embodied in the eponymous Kipling Suite, and they're a vital part of the surrounding area. This is why we invite you on a walk through Mayfair to celebrate and pay homage to the rich and varied stories that Browns has been witness to. Storystock Sounds will bring to life a selection of the iconic blue plaques that are part of the fabric and heritage of London, whilst walking you through the glorious streets of Mayfair. I would like you now. To walk out onto Albemarle Street, we are going to turn left out of the hotel. Now, straight opposite, you will see a plaque dedicated to Daniel O'Connell. He was an Irish leader in the first half of the 19th century and has been compared to Nelson Mandela and Martin Luther King. So keep walking down Albemarle Street towards Grafton Street. Albemarle Street was where the movers and shakers of the 19th century congregated. The publisher John Murray had its headquarters there, and almost all the literary magnates of the day were four o'clock friends in Albemarle Street, so-called because they took afternoon tea together. It was here in 1811 where a handsome, supercilious young aristo limped up the staircase, clutching a long poem. About his exotic travels, John fell under his spell. Lord Byron's *Child Harold's Pilgrimage* sold out in three days after it was published. Fan mail poured in. Byron was the talk of the town and the heartthrob of dozens of girls and boys who sent locks of hair and begged for secret trysts. His scandalous cavortings were great for publicity. And his poems would help transform Murray's into one of the most successful and prestigious imprints in publishing history. Now look up to your right, and you will see the glorious Royal Institution, founded in 1799. Twenty-one Albemarle Street came up for sale when the previous owner had been killed by a highwayman a year earlier. It soon became a fully functioning scientific institution with laboratories, lecture theatres, meeting rooms, and libraries. The lectures that were given there were as legendary as the infamous philanderings down the road. It was here where elements of the periodic table were discovered. Here, where Michael Faraday would oversee more discoveries that were to change science forever and dazzle everyone with his lectures that brought science into a whole new dimension. During the Second World War, the basements were used as a bomb shelter. The building itself did not suffer any direct bomb damage, although the windows were blown out by a bomb which fell in Dover Street. Now, when you get to Grafton Street, please turn right. You can see Givenchy on the corner. Keep going, and then take a left onto New Bond Street.
This is the home of true haute couture. Everywhere you look is a global fashion label. Here's Dior, here's Louis Vuitton, further down Chanel, Burberry and Hermès. Now keep walking down towards New Bond Street and you will see ahead of you a statue of two men on a bench. It is called Allies. When Winston Churchill died on January the 24th, 1965, Britain mourned just as the United States had done 20 years before when President Roosevelt died suddenly while still in office. In many ways, the two were very different men, but pushed together by fate, Churchill and Roosevelt forged one of the most important relationships of the 20th century. After the war ended in 1945, many grandiose statues were made to celebrate the two heroes. But it was intimacy that British-American sculptor Lawrence Holofsener had in mind when he created Allies. The two friends sit on a bench, talking amiably, with Churchill holding his trademark cigar. Princess Margaret unveiled the statue on the 2nd of May 1995 to commemorate 50 years of peace. It is now a popular tourist attraction, as visitors can take their place among two of the 20th century's most exalted heroes. Keep walking on up New Bond Street, where I need you to cross over Conduit Street and to get a feel of where we are a little beyond these streets. You have the Royal Academy just behind us to our right, which has hosted artists as varied as Ai Weiwei, David Hockney, Monet van Gogh and Marina Abramovich. The Burlington Arcade takes you back to Piccadilly, where you will find Fortnum and Mason, German Street for the finest suits in the world, the Ritz Hotel looking out over Green Park, and further on towards the river are both the Houses of Parliament and Buckingham Palace. Take your time here and do feel free to pause me as you admire some of the world's most iconic fashion brands. Mayfair is known worldwide for its glitz and glamour. It is even reflected in the board game Monopoly, where Mayfair is the most expensive property to buy. But mega-rich Mayfair has not always been this way. In fact, the area was a public nuisance during the early days and was a far cry from the area we are walking through today. You should be crossing over Conduit Street now. Mayfair gets his name from the Mayfair that was held in, you guessed it, May every year. It grew in size year on year and hosted jugglers, fencers and bare-knuckle fighting. It was declared a public nuisance as it attracted an undesirable crowd and a public campaign was staged to shut it down, which was achieved in 1796. I now hope you will be standing outside 147 New Bond Street, where Horatio Lord Nelson lived. You will need to stand back to see the plaque. Blue Plaque Stories Horatio Nelson 147 New Bond Street Read by Rory Barnett by the time I found myself at this house, the damn French had taken my sight and my arm and most of my health. I came here a broken man, 
after two years at sea without setting a foot on dry land, I really believe that my shattered carcass was in the worst shape of its life. Little did I know, but here at number 147 Bond Street, as I was getting stronger, the lady who was to become the most important woman in the world to me, Emma Hamilton, lived a little further down the road. I didn't stay in Bond Street for long. Life on land was not for the vice-admiral of the Royal Navy, and I was not my best when inactive. I joined the Navy when I was just 12 years old. I first went to sea with my uncle who captained the Raisonnable. I left Norfolk and my 11 siblings to join the Navy. Everyone wanted to join the Royal Navy. My father was a clergyman, so at least I knew I had God on my side. By the time I was 14, I had seen more of the world than most men had seen in their whole lives. I contracted malaria somewhere in the Indian Ocean when I was not much older, and in those long and gloomy reveries of convalescence, I realised that my king and my country were my calling. It was in Naples where I met Sir William and Lady Hamilton. Thanks to their help, we victualled and watered and ensured ourselves victory. We set sail with the first breeze and I was assured that I would return crowned with laurels. It was to be the laurel for a few more years to come. Back in Norfolk, my marriage to Francis could not continue. I could not forget my obligations to Lady Hamilton, or speak and think of her otherwise than with the greatest possible affection and admiration. We never lived together again. Emma, Lady Hamilton, found a place at Merton Place, south of the Thames, which became our home together with her husband Sir William. It had its own moat which we called the Nile. My daughter Horatia was born there. But England expects every man to do his duty, and the French and Spanish were closing in once more. I felt possessed by a prophetic visionary fire. I believed I could save England. The Nelson touch. It was new, it was singular... And it was simple. It was about intricate planning. Nothing must be left to chance. We would inspire with confidence. The plan was audacious. But what is a plan, if not audacious? It would, of course, be a battle to end all battles. The day that I defeat the tyrant Napoleon. For it is simply a matter of time, precision and the bravery of my men, my band of brothers. For peace with Napoleon Bonaparte could never be. I leave peace to the hands of the diplomats. Does this put me in the pantheon of British heroes? Perhaps one only becomes a hero if one dies a hero's death. Look at Achilles. Look at the Greek Homeric epics. Am I to be that man? I should like one day to stand high over London, looking out towards Portsmouth, where she is moored, waiting for my signal. HMS Victory, before the Battle of Trafalgar. I would like to look down towards the King and have every ship from my fleet atop the lampposts, lighting the way for carriages in the night. Now I'd like you to keep walking up New Bond Street and cross over Maddox Street. Mayfair has been an epicentre of society from the rough-and-tumble world of the 18th century, where the crowded and raucous streets of Hogarthian London are not that different from today. 
In the early 1700s, you might have walked with Alexander Pope, later Henry James, Lawrence Stern, heard Benjamin Disraeli's plans for the country or seen Joshua Reynolds alongside Oliver Goldsmith and Samuel Johnson. If it wasn't 18th century writers fueling mobs and fighting duels, it would be 19th century writers and disreputable lovers or 20th century dramas unfolding between clubs, houses, squares and theatres. These streets certainly have many stories to tell. Then came the First World War. Before we go on, you should be about to cross Maddox Street now. Please do take care of the traffic. A reduced workforce meant servants were in short supply and those willing to serve the now-declining upper classes demanded far higher salaries. This led to some of the leases on the grandest properties not being renewed, and some of the most expensive houses being converted to foreign embassies. Large sections of the City of London were destroyed during the Blitz, and Mayfair attracted much commercial development, with several corporate headquarters being established in the area. Residential properties started becoming available again in the 1990s, although the rents and rates are among the highest in London and indeed the world. I'd like you now to turn left onto Brook Street. Please walk down Brook Street for a few yards until you come to a red brick house which sports not just one, but two blue plaques. You will pass a little alleyway to your left and then find yourself at number 25 Brook Street, home to two very different people in very different times both of whom have had an extraordinary impact on not only the musical, but the cultural world as a whole. George Friedrich Handel and Jimi Hendrix. You can see the house is now converted into a museum. Do pause if you'd like to step inside and see the place for yourself. They are two very different musical icons. Blue Plaque Stories, Jimi Hendrix, 23 Brook Street, read by David L. Bennett. The first time I came to England, I thought it had a different kind of atmosphere here. People are more mild-mannered. I like all the little streets and the boutiques, you know. It's like a kind of fairyland. And the rain, the grey rain makes me think of Seattle and my dad. And there's a buzz, you know, and the tube, I take it every day, everywhere. It has its own sound, a rhythm, and the places are better than in the village. Everyone is out. We hang at Giovanni's in Denmark Street, the ship in Wardour Street. Everyone is together like a family. Donovan, Ringo, Ronnie, they're all there. And then... Scotch of St. James where I first played and where I met Kathy. She's so, so beautiful. That's what I told her when I met. And she laughed, you know. Not in my face, but so I could see her beautiful teeth, her head thrown back. I'm not sure if she digs my music. Sometimes she'll leave the club when on stage. She says it's too smoke. 
But I don't think she's into it when I play with my guitar behind my head or set my guitar on fire. London is the place where I first became Jimmy. I told my dad, I've met someone, and they're going to make me a big star. We changed my name to Jimmy, J-I-M-I. Chase Chandler, my manager, was keen as we needed to get a visa, a seven-day visa, the one for tourists. That's all I had. When Kathy and I moved into 23 Brook, it wasn't my first London pad, but, but it was the one that felt most like home. Like this strange for me as I'm scared of vegetating. I have to move. I had to dig Britain, but I haven't really got a home anywhere. The earth's my home. But then when I'm in Brook Street just with Kathy, it feels like home. It cost 30 pounds a week. It totaled up when we signed the lease, but Kathy had looked for a while and all the agents were saying no. Perhaps they'd heard I'd... <laughs> I'd had leave my other London pads... I had a flat in Holland Park when I shared with Ronnie Wood. I gave him a basset hound called Snoopy that used to shit everywhere. <laughs> Pat Arnold, who owned the place, said, either the dog goes or you two go. The place in Brook Street was the place to be. We all gathered to jam and chill. We put camp bed tucked in the corner for people to sleep over. George and John were regulars. Kathy and I had gone to John Lewis the week after we got the key so we could deck it out. A funny looking man came with his tape measure. <laughs> Kathy had gone to get stuff from the Portbello Road Market and it was just me and this funny looking man measuring my windows for curtains. I liked it best when it was just Kathy and I. We play cards and twister, drink tea and sometimes she'd wander downstairs to buy cigarettes. Blue Plaque Stories, George Friedrich Handel, 25 Brook Street, read by Rory Barnett. I may not be the robust young man that first came to London, but where my body now fails me, my mind triumphs. I see only in my thoughts these days, old age has stolen the vision I once had, but what I cannot see I can still feel thanks to my music. Music has always allowed me this, and so I can continue and I will compose until my dying day. If my father were still alive, I'd be pleased to say, See? My music did pay off. He never did approve. He saw me as a lawyer, and I saw myself quite differently. Even as a child back in Heller in Germany, I only ever wanted to play on the violin, the organ or the clavichord. Anything I could get my hands on, but it was never without worrying about father, tutting in the corner. <sighs> Mother was always on my side, though, smuggling a clavichord into the attic just so I could practice without father knowing. <laughs> it was really only after I played the organ for Duke Johann Adolf I that my father's mind was swayed. When the Duke urged him to let me take music lessons, and the rest, as they say, is history. When I finally became a violinist with an orchestra, the Hamburg Opera Orchestra, that is, I thought I was set. I loved life in the orchestra, but things turned a little sour when I found myself in a duel with the composer Mattison over one of his operas. Trouble has often followed me, it seems, or I follow trouble. I'm not sure which is more true. Alas, it didn't hold me back, as it was here my first two operas were produced. But this was not enough for me. My thirst to learn more, to be better, led me to move to Italy, the place I saw as the heart of opera. Here I could live and breathe music, composing all the time. My opera Agrippina was produced in Venice and was so popular it had 26 performances and my name was made. Oh, the name 
What a wonderful fuss was made, and in Italy too, with so many English ladies and gentlemen there to hear my music. I was soon invited to England, an offer I have never looked back on. It was in 1711 my first opera for London, Rinaldo, premiered, and was a great success. I rather liked the warm reception I received and made me think I'd quite like to stay in England and to eventually move here. One fan in particular changed my life. Queen Anne, who decided to give me an allowance for life. I was worried after she died this might end, but King George I was just as kind and loved my piece, Water Music, which was performed for him and his friends on the River Thames. After being in England for 12 years, I finally moved here to 25 Brook Street, renting it for many years, and somewhere I will look back fondly on. In these walls my music has lived, rehearsing, copying music, selling tickets even to my operas. When I first moved in, I wrote three new operas in just two years, and one of my greatest honours was being commissioned to write four pieces for King George II's coronation. I called these, The King Shall Rejoice, My Heart Is Indicting, Let Thy Hand Be Strengthened, and finally, Zadok the Priest. This last piece seems to have been very well received. I hope it will live on, and not just for this coronation, but only time will tell. Keep walking up Brook Street, and you are heading towards Grosvenor Square. You will pass Geoffrey Wyattville, who would have lived here at a similar time to Nelson. He was an English architect and garden designer. He is famous for the alterations he made to both Chatsworth House and Windsor Castle. He was knighted by George IV in 1828. Up ahead, you will see the flags of Claridge's Hotel, another bastion of society. As railways began to crisscross through the Victorian landscape, hotels would become increasingly important to London life. In the Regency era, they served as a stomping ground for gentlemen without a town home or needing to escape their family seat. It also was a good temporary post for foreign travellers and families, whilst the hotel would also serve as their London address while entertaining themselves for a season. Mivart's, now Claridge's, was founded in 1812. Now housing 203 rooms, the original Regency rooms were situated in five sites of traditional terrace housing. At the corner of Brook and Davies Streets, the location highly desirable for visitors to town and the season. Stop a moment under these flags and feel the ghosts of statesmen, authors and film stars, all who have stayed here. Walk on to Davies Street and cross over here at the traffic lights. Remember, just pause me if I'm going too fast. Keep walking up to Grosvenor Square. You will see the Argentinian embassy up ahead on the left. As I mentioned earlier, many of these grand houses became foreign embassies when it became too expensive for individuals to afford the leases. The Argentinian ambassador himself lives in a separate residence in Belgravia.
keep walking until you get to number 67, where none other than the Bee Gees stayed and composed some of their most famous music. Handel, Hendrix, and now the Bee Gees. I wonder who might be the music residents of the future. Opposite you will see the plaque of Colin Campbell, another architect. No wonder the buildings are so splendid here. He was a pioneering Scottish architect and architectural writer, credited as a founder of the Georgian style. For most of his career he lived in Italy and England. As well as his architectural designs, he is known for his work Vitruvius Britannicus, three volumes of high-quality engravings showing the great houses of the time. In this work, the principle was laid down that buildings should exhibit three qualities. Firmitatis, utilitatis, venustatis, that is, stability, utility and beauty. These are sometimes termed the Vitruvian virtues or the Vitruvian triad. We can see these principles in pretty good detail throughout the streets of Mayfair. Now keep walking and ahead of you is Grosvenor Square. Look at the beautiful red brick houses to the right of the square. Further up to your right is Oxford Street and more High Street shopping and straight on beyond Grosvenor Square is Hyde Park, Marble Arch and onwards to the west, Notting Hill and beyond. It is said that people used to collect mushrooms and walnuts in Grosvenor Square but are unlikely to be found doing so now. You should now find yourself at Grosvenor Square. You need to take a left and walk along the east side of the square, passing the Italian embassy on your left. Buonasera, signorina, buonasera. It is time to say goodnight to Napoli. Though it's hard for us to whisper, buonasera. With that old moon above the Mediterranean Sea In the morning, Senorino will go walking Where the mountains help the sun come into sight This has been the embassy since 1931. The front entrance is located on a private cul-de-sac behind, though there is also an entrance at the back on Grosvenor Square. The former American embassy used to take up the whole side of Grosvenor Square. The current American embassy is located in Nine Elms and is the largest American embassy in Western Europe and the focal point for events relating to the United States held in the United Kingdom. Whilst Grosvenor Square was home to society darlings and debutante balls, it has seen its fair share of protests. In March 1968, a crowd of some 10,000 demonstrated at Trafalgar Square against US involvement in the Vietnam War before marching to Grosvenor Square. The Metropolitan Police had attempted to cordon off part of the square nearest to the embassy, and there was violence as the crowd broke through the police line. This square saw the Black Lives Matter protest in 2020, protesting against the murder of George Floyd. Now that the American embassy has moved premises, things tend to be a little quieter in terms of banners and placards.
We want you to turn left now, down Grosvenor Street. Every time I walk down Grosvenor Street, the buildings astound me. Some newly developed, some older, and all magnificent. Grosvenor Street was one of the earliest streets to be laid out as part of the Grosvenor family's development of their Mayfair lands, the very first building agreement being in August 1720. And by 1729, most of the houses in the street had been built and occupied. In 1735, Grosvenor Street was described as a spacious and well-built street inhabited chiefly by people of distinction. Dukes, earls, army officers, ambassadors and churchmen at every corner. When you get to the lights on Davy Street, cross over here and continue on down Grosvenor Street. Keep walking a little way and look up across the road and you will see at number 60 a plaque to Anne Oldfield, one of the highest paid actresses of her time. She died here in Grosvenor Street and was buried in Westminster Abbey. She is commemorated by this plaque and by a simple black slate with her name and date of death. She was an avid reader and performed for Queen Anne in Drury Lane. Alexander Pope said, Engaging Oldfield, who with grace and ease could join the arts to ruin and please. Keep going and you will walk past number 21 to 22 Grosvenor Street and a plaque commemorating Sir Alexander Corder. Alexander Corder was born Sandor Kellner, on September the 16th, 1893, on a settlement on the outskirts of Turkeve on the Great Hungarian Plain. He was the oldest of three sons in a family of assimilated Jews. As a young boy, Sandor's sight was damaged by the improper treatment of an eye condition. Throughout his life, he always wore thick glasses. Despite this detriment, he was a voracious reader and acquired a near photographic memory. Throughout his life, he also mastered about a half-dozen languages and was known to be a brilliant, some say hypnotic, conversationalist. Alexander Corder arrived in Britain having already established himself as a successful filmmaker in Hungary. He first became fascinated with filmmaking during his time in Paris, where he worked for Pathé Studios. A career followed, taking him to Berlin, Hollywood and then finally to the UK. You will need to cross over the road carefully here and take a little side street called Broadbent Street. This is a small street to the right of Grosvenor Street. There is a super yacht agency on the corner. Take a right up Broadbent Street and you will see a couple of wall sculptures. Night and Day by Richard Kindersley are three-metre-tall Portland stone carvings on Broadbent House. These two carvings were inspired by the May Fair, which we mentioned earlier, and from which the area takes its name. May Day festivities started as pagan fertility rites, and these carvings tap into that spirit, heralding the coming of summer and of new and raucous life. The quotation comes from the poem Silver by Walter Delamere in 1913, which we will have read for us now. Silver by Walter Delamere, read by Nadine Wild Palmer. Slowly, silently, now the moon walks the night in her silver shoon. This way and that she peers and sees silver fruit upon silver trees. One by one the casements catch Her beams beneath the silvery thatch Couched in his kennel like a log With paws of silver sleeps the dog From their shadowy coat the white breasts peep Of doves in a silver feathered sleep A harvest mouse goes scampering by With silver claws and a silver eye And moveless fish in the water gleam By silver reeds in a silver stream 
Keep walking, and you will find yourself in a pedestrian zone which turns into a little square with trees and curious shaped benches where chauffeurs and private drivers might be found having well earned sandwiches from the cafe round the corner. Walk up the top right corner and follow your nose to Berkeley Square. That certain night, the night we met, there was magic abroad in the air. There were angels dining at the Ritz. And a nightingale sang in Berkeley Square. I may be right, I may be wrong, but I'm perfectly willing to swear that when you turned and smiled at me. A nightingale sang in Berkeley Square. Cross over Bourdain Street. You are now heading straight to Berkeley Square. The moon that lingered over London town. Poor puzzled moon, he wore a frown. How could he know we two were so in love? The whole darn world seemed upside down. You should now find yourself on the wide pavements of Berkeley Square that often are a riot of building work and drilling. But make your way to the right and a zebra crossing will take you over to the square itself. We are going to make our way down to the right-hand southwestern corner of the square. If the gardens themselves aren't hosting an international art fair or concert, do feel free to walk through or round the railings on the right-hand side. These houses were all once privately owned. Now the names on the brass signs show that all are leased out to wealth management firms and financial consultants. But much of this area itself still belongs to the Grosvenor family. I still remember how you smiled and said, "Was that a dream, or was it true?" Keep walking down towards Charles Street, the southwestern corner. A nightingale sang. In Berkeley Square, I know 'cause I was there that night in Berkeley If you have explored inside the square, I'd like you to exit back out onto the pavement by number forty-five Belgrave Square. There is a zebra crossing just a little further up the road to your right. Be careful to concentrate, as the roads get suddenly very busy. A little further on, and you will see a rather impressive square plaque for Clive of India. Robert Clive was part of the East India Company at the peak of the Raj. And became a very, very rich man. At forty-six Berkeley Square to your right is Annabelle's nightclub and members' club, which was set up in 1968 by Mark Burley and named for his wife. It was one of the first nightclubs in London and was especially popular with the British aristocracy and the international jet set in the 1960s and 1970s. It began in the basement and now occupies the entirety of the Georgian townhouse. Many of the most famous entertainers have performed live at Annabelle's, including Ray Charles, Ella Fitzgerald, Lady Gaga, Diana Ross, and Tina Turner. 
Next on the right is George Canning, who was Foreign Secretary in the 1820s and a very dashing but short-lived Prime Minister. He held the record as the shortest-serving Prime Minister. The record stood at 119 days, but Liz Truss trumped him to hold the record at 49 days, from the 6th of September to the 25th of October 2022. Follow the railings, which incidentally were removed during the war and used by the US Army, and turn right into Charles Street. Here we see again a wonderful mishmash of architecture. Keep walking until you get to the Footman Pub, which has been a local stalwart since 1749. Its full name was The Only Running Footman, and was long famous for its sign which used to read in full, I am the only running footman. At 24 characters, this was the longest pub name in London, until modern pubs were created with more elaborate names. The pub is said to be named after a retired footman who bought the establishment and named it after himself, or via its then-owner, William Douglas, 4th Duke of Queensbury, who employed a footman said to be able to keep up a respectable eight miles per hour. Footmen were originally employed to run ahead of a carriage to ensure the way was clear. As roads got better and clearer, the demand for their services fell away and many were re-employed as household servants. The pub is believed to have been the inspiration for the Junior Ganymede Club, a fictional club in P.G. Woodhouse's Jeeves books. Cross the road carefully and you will see a plaque dedicated to Lady Dorothy Neville. You will notice that this is a green plaque. Lady Dorothy was a horticulturalist, a hostess and a writer. She held legendary soirees that people would do almost anything to attend. History doesn't relate what exactly went on at these soirees, but one can imagine a combination of fine wine and fine conversation. Most interestingly, though, aside from the parties, she had over 17 conservatories, not obviously here in her house in Charles Street, but her country home. And from these conservatories, she supplied rare plants to Charles Darwin for his research. That is quite some claim to fame. I would like you to keep walking down Charles Street, noticing the black painted houses, old houses, newly developed houses, and some even derelict houses, which are unlikely to stay like that for long. Initially, plaques were blue, but this was expensive and a difficult colour to produce, and over the next 35 years, the Society of Arts mainly used a chocolate brown background. Then the London County Council took over the scheme and developed a pretty laurel wreath border, used up to the Second World War. During the LCC era, plaques were made of bronze, stone, lead and all sorts of colours. The Greater London Council continued the project and finally English heritage. In 1938, the new blue plaque started and since 1965... Every plaque has been blue. The oldest surviving plaque goes to Napoleon in 1867, and now the rule is that a recipient must be dead for 20 years before the plaque goes up. Take the first left down Queen Street and then the next left on to Curzon Street. Here we will find our penultimate plaque to Nancy Mitford at number 10 Curzon Street. 
Straight ahead of us is the wonderful Shepherd's Market, now a bustling hub of restaurants and cafes, and, since 2017, Five Hartford Street, another private members' club owned by Robin Burley. Here the creme de la creme of high flyers spend their evenings, from Harry Styles to Mick Jagger, George Clooney and Leonardo DiCaprio, along with Meghan Markle and Prince Harry. Among other wonderful restaurants, Kitty Fisher's is a charming and tiny restaurant serving delicious food. The Bunch of Grapes pub remains thankfully unchanged and ungentrified for decades. Shepherd's Market still manages to accommodate both the uber-rich and those looking for a more regular night out. And as a result, a slice of old London remains, although the Ferraris seem to be taking the upper hand. Do stop outside the shop, Hayward Hill, number 10 Curzon Street. It is a true gem of a bookshop where Nancy Mitford herself worked. Do pop in to have a look around after we have heard our next story. Blue Plaque Stories Nancy Mitford, 10 Curzon Street Read by Penelope Wilton. It was in March 1942 when I started working at Hayward Hills Bookshop, right here on Curzon Street, the Rue Centre of Old World Gossip. The shop really is a delight, full of people all day. We rather thought of going into partnership, myself and Hayward, as I always wanted to play at bookshopping, but we were never quite able to decide how it was to work out. He was called up in 1942, so I manned the fort. It was simply the only place one wanted to be. London had been so frightfully jolly, with incessant parties, until the war came, and then it all dried up, rather. There were these screaming bombs that simply made your flesh creep, and great fires everywhere, and then wave after wave of airplanes. Ambulances tearing up the street and horrible, unnatural blaze of searchlights. Oh, and the burglars everywhere. Fifteen in Belgravia one Saturday night alone. I slept with a gun to hand. The added trouble of the war was no vie sociale, you understand. And when one does dine with someone or other, the talk is always of craters, shelters, and what happened to so-and-so's mother or aunt. I'd been writing lots of books and articles as my husband Peter and I were very short of funds, all pretty unsuccessfully, until I started to write a different sort of book, perhaps copying my dear friend Evelyn Waugh about my family. It wasn't Brideshead, not so grand, but far madder. I was awfully excited. My fingers itched for the pen. It was so quick and easy to write and an utter joy. Three months and it was done. I called it the pursuit of love. Once the war was over, I did get myself to Paris. I ran something of a branch of Hayward Hill in Paris with rather a good deal on selling our English books to the French. I stayed first at the Hotel Jacob. Quelle horreur! No bathroom or loo, dry bread and water for breakfast, but the romance of it kept me going. I supposed when the weather got cold, I should die like a geranium but I would go to Dior and gaze at the winter coats to the ankle. I didn't stay at the Hotel Jacob for long. I moved to the Rue Bonaparte and felt very dashing. Things had been rocky for some time between my husband Peter, and so I stayed on in Paris. There was a wonderful hoo-ha when Pursuit was published, all sorts of people imagining who was who. The reviews from America were pretty good too, but maybe they're always like that there, frightfully enthusiastic. The moment you set foot in France, you can take it from me, pure happiness begins. Of course, I know it was partly that Gaston, my dear colonel, was there, but I didn't see him all the time by any means, and every minute of the day there was bliss. 
I busied on with my writing, film scripts, all sorts of lovely translation work, and then historical biographies, far more relaxing dealing with the dead. I was determined not to pine on for my Gaston, my colonel, and give in to the gloom. So I toured and fro to Venice, writing in the morning, bathing in the Lido in the afternoon, and then the Piazza San Marco for evenings. Bliss. I had thought that in the end, I would long and long to live quietly in Provence and not always feel so overdone. But there was always a reason to stay. And I should imagine I might easily become something of a bore if I surrounded myself with roses. And to be a bore, well... That would never do. Keep walking round past the bookshop, past G.F. Trumper, Barber and Perfumier, that has been located here for over a hundred years and is the undisputed top spot to experience a classic hot towel shave, haircut or beard trim. The atmosphere gets palpably busier here. We are running parallel to Piccadilly and Green Park is just over the way. Buckingham Palace is not far, so we are now in tourist land, or on the edge of it. You will see hotels and sandwich shops rather than Dior and Chanel. You will need to cross Clarges Street. Please do be careful, as taxis and delivery drivers believe the road is theirs alone. of London I'll show you something to make you change your mind Round to your left is Lansdowne House on to Fitzmorris Place where we have our final blue plaque story Blue Plaque Stories Harry Selfridge Lansdowne House 9 Fitzmorris Place Read by Danny Houston My daughter Violet was married in a wedding gown trimmed in lace that once belonged to Marie Antoinette. It's fair to say that we like the fine things of life. I guess I must have learnt that young not having one single fine thing when I was growing up in Chicago. I so wanted everyone to have beautiful things to live life comfortably, to prosper. I wish my wife Rose could have seen this house that we live in in London. Uh, We moved here after the war, after dear Rose had passed away. Uh, There were grand rooms in a grand part of town. Uh, The fine things that you see are essential. Uh, You just need to find ways to pay for them. I always knew that it's easier to see a way through things when you're properly dressed. I insisted on clean shirts two or or three times a day. Uh, The shine on my top hat was legendary. Always a three-piece suit, gloves, sparkling shoes. I suppose I looked like an English gentleman. The truth is, I I, I looked more like a showman, a maverick American, uh, but that's fine by me, Uh, to bring a bit of theater to the lives of everyday people. And one thing I always knew was that the customer's always right. If that's the cash raise you know now, well, you heard it here first from me. Treat your customer as a guest. Uh, When they come and when they go, whether or not they buy, in their turn, they will reward you for it. 
Whoever said build it and they will come, well, it was like that with me. I built a cathedral of commerce and changed shopping forever. We opened the store that still holds my name in March 1909. We had settled on a site which at the time was the dead end of Oxford Street, but it had a, a magic about it. Conveniently placed for the mansions of Portman Square, near enough to the fashionable St. John's Wood, and most important of all, it was ideally situated on the central line, which opened six years prior to capture 100,000 people a day who traveled between Shepherd's Bush and Bank. I wanted them to change the name of Bond Street Tube to Selfridges. Perhaps they still might. It wasn't easy building my cathedral. So much demolition needs to be done, and the building's regulations were something else here in the UK, so very different from Chicago. They rejected my initial plans. We were allowed nothing higher than 80 feet, so we counted that by building the deepest basement, which was to play its part in the war as a bunker for the British and American intelligence. Investors and partners came and went, and more and more builders and architects buying more and more tons of steel, and we were set. My windows alone were spectacular, a work of art, each a blank canvas waiting to tell a story. Our shop windows were the first to be lit at night. Uh, people wondered whether it was a, a shop or a Greek temple. All this cost a lot of money, of course, and I would have only the best that money could buy. But all the dinners and the theaters and the chorus girls and the nightclubs and, of course, the, the Baccarat. Well, I must admit, I used the store's income as something of a personal pocketbook. But then... It was all mine, really, wasn't it? I always would wear my three-piece suit and top hat, even though it did get kind of shabby. Uh, this house was a far cry from where I ended my days, in a flat in Putney. Because money, even when you have lots and lots of it, does have a habit of running out. I was asked not to come back to the store when things got really bad, but I would board the number 22 bus to Oxford Street, and look at my store from the other side of the road, remembering. A store should be like a song of which one never tires. Selfridges was like that for me. I would like you now to cross back over the road and walk through the pedestrianised area called Lansdowne Row, which seems to exist in another dimension, scented with the Arabian aromas of shisha pipes that are being constantly smoked in all the cafes on that stretch. This cut-through street connects you to Barclay Street, and I need you to please take care when crossing this road over into Hay Hill, up and opposite across the road.
Walk up Hay Hill and you need to take a right onto Dover Street. Cross over the zebra crossing once you get onto Dover Street and take a right along Dover Street. We are just behind Brown's Hotel and almost back home. Your final turning is onto Stafford Street, the next left, and then you'll find yourself back onto Albemarle Street and to the welcome sight of the Browns Hotel flag. We really hope you have enjoyed our walk through Mayfair and have seen a nugget of London life told through the people that have lived here. I wonder if you will agree with one Sir Alan Fitzherbert who wrote to Lord St Helens to say, I tried in early life nearly all the capitals of Europe but will always maintain that there was no other place but London that was worth staying in. This audio production for Brown's Hotel is brought to you by Storystock Sounds. Your narrator was Rory Barnett, the sound production by Ian Bradley, and the accompanying map illustrated by Tricia Krauss.